Turn with me to John chapter 12. John chapter 12. We'll be reading verses 1 through 8. Looking at the anointing. John chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. Give attention to God's holy word. Then, six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead. There they made him a supper, and Martha served, but Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. Then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, Why was this fragrant oil not sold for three hundred denarii and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box, and he used to take what was put in it. But Jesus said, let her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial. For the poor you have with you always, but me you do not always have. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the accomplishment of your word in the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the great token of that accomplishment, the outpoured Holy Spirit. And we pray now that during this time of preaching, you would fill us once again with your Spirit, anointing our eyes and our ears, that we may see and hear wonderful things from your Word. We pray all of this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Friendship is a very important aspect of our existence. Friendship is so important that if you read the ancient philosophers, many of them devoted whole sections of their philosophy to the theme of friendship. Cicero, Aristotle, uh, they would all write on this idea of friendship because they understood that mankind is a social animal. And we were made for friendship, we were made for community. Now, if I were to ask you, how do you know who your friends are? You might say something like, uh, those who spend time with me, uh, those who have helped me in my time of need, those who have uh, given passionate expression to their uh, love and tenderness towards me. All of these things would be true, but remember, those are expressions of friendship. Deep down, your true friends are those that love you, are those that love you above all else, at least properly in the relation that you stand with that person. Those are your true friends. Now, if I were to ask you, how do you know if somebody is not your friend? Well, oftentimes, as the saying goes, it's when hard times come that you can tell who your real friends are. You see, when the hard times come, those who are not really your friends begin to draw away. Those who have said that they love you uh, begin to betray you 
in a sense, when things get difficult. Now, why do people do this? Well, in our lives, people often do this because they love something more than us. They may have loved something about our relationship, but they didn't really care for us. Now, as Paul the Apostle would say, I'm speaking as a man. I'm I'm speaking about human things at a human level. But there is a parallel. There is an analogy to our relationship with Christ. And what we see in this passage is this relationship drawn out in living color. What we're going to see in this passage is that Christ's true friends show themselves by their devotion to Him, and Christ's enemies show themselves by their devotion to something else. Christ's true friends show themselves by their devotion to Him, and Christ's enemies show themselves by devotion to something else. In verses 1 through uh, through 3, pardon me, we see this lovely picture of Christ's friends. And then in verses 4 through 8, we see a horrifying picture of Christ's enemies. Verses 1 through 3 are Christ's friends, and verses 4 through 8 are Christ's enemies. Now, as we come to this passage, I want you to notice the transition we've just made. John indicates this transition with the opening lines of our passage. Six days before the Passover. Six days before the high sacrifice of the Old Testament system. Six days before the sacramental union between the sign and the things signified would finally be realized. You see, the the Paschal Lamb, the Passover Lamb of Moses and the Exodus from Egypt was symbolic of what Christ would come to do and accomplish and bring into reality. This Passover, the Passover of Passovers, is six days away. We we are now in, as they say, the fourth quarter. We're now in the end game of the earthly ministry of Christ. This Passover is six days away. What we also need to pay attention to, especially in John's Gospel, and the other Gospels as well, these kind of transitions indicate for us where the rest of this Gospel is going, what what the themes now are going to be. John has introduced us to the Passover, and that means one very important thing. We are now getting ready for the cross. There's really not much else for Christ to do except head to the cross and give his final teachings to his disciples. This is the context. And it's within this context that Jesus comes to Bethany. John gives us another notice here. This Bethany is where Lazarus, who had been dead, whom he uh, uh, was, Lazarus was here, who had been dead, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Now, Christ is coming once again to this town where there's this Jewish family that Christ has performed a miraculous work of grace in their family's life. And their response is kind of anticlimactic, it might seem. 
Christ has raised this man from the dead. John tells us that twice in one verse. Verse 2. There they made him a supper. Very interesting, isn't it? This family is a picture of devotion and friendship to Christ. The best they can do in light of his grace and his power toward them is spread the table and have a meal. Nothing spectacular. No, no marvelous act of martyrdom. No uh, arduous pilgrimage to a foreign land. No, no vast missionary journey. Christ is in the area, and they open their doors and say, come, have a meal with us. You see, the reason that this very simple act of friendship is so profound is because the motivation behind it is pure love for Christ. They're not seeking glory. They're not seeking fame. They're not seeking anything except to be with the one that they love one last time. Now, there's a question in this text. There's a lot of questions in this text, but but one of the immediate questions is, how much did Mary, Martha, and Lazarus understand about this Passover that was coming up? It's an open question. I think it would stand to reason, at least I would be comfortable with this interpretation. They probably understood what was coming. In fact, we're going to learn later on that uh, Mary saved this oil of spikenard for the day of his burial. So I think there's an instinct in them, perhaps through the Lord's own teaching, perhaps through their own understanding of the Old Testament economy, that this Passover is coming. And this Passover is going to be the Passover that leads to the Lord's crucifixion. They have a spiritual understanding about what's going on, like I said, either from Christ himself or from their knowledge of the Old Testament scriptures. Now, here's one of the first things for you to understand, brothers and sisters. If you would grow in your love and devotion to Christ, know the scriptures. It's likely that Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, well, not likely, it, it's, it's pretty certain, they are faithful Jews. They are probably the best that Old Testament Judaism could produce. They, they know the scriptures, they're looking for the Lord Jesus, and when Lord, the Lord Jesus comes, they recognize him as the one that was promised in the Old Testament. Because they know these scriptures, they also understand the sacraments. Remember how John introduces this. The Passover is six days away. Faithful Jews in the Old Testament who were under the Old Testament economy understood that the sacrifices were symbolic of Christ. They didn't rest in the blood of bulls and goats. They didn't rest in the priesthood of Aaron. They looked at those things and through those things saw the finished work of Christ that would be accomplished. Here's just one example of the faith of the Old Testament. Look in Psalm 51. Psalm 51, of course, is the very famous repentance psalm of David. And as David is repenting and and confessing to the Lord the heart of his religion comes out. The essence of what he believed 
comes to the forefront, especially in verses 15, 16, and 17. David is praying. He says, O Lord, open my lips and my mouth shall show forth your praise. For you do not desire sacrifice, else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. Why would David say that? God commanded sacrifice and burnt offering through the hand of uh, Moses. Yet David says, you do not desire those things. You do not delight in these things. David goes on and then says in verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart you will not despise. You see, David understood that the sacrificial system was only symbolic. It meant to represent something deeper and greater. In this passage, it represents the broken heart of a sinner. It represents the heart of a sinner who is convicted and is seeking reconciliation with God, not through the blood of bulls and goats, but through the blood of the Son of David, through the blood of the Messiah that actually accomplishes what the sacrifices represented. This is just one example from the Old Testament. It's therefore likely Mary, Martha, and Lazarus had something of this understanding. And so they prepare a meal for Christ, and they show their devotion to Christ in various ways. First, in verse 2, they made him a supper, and Martha served. There are many in the church who have gifts of service. We've seen this in Martha before. Earlier on in a different gospel, uh, Mary and Martha are hosting another fellowship meal, and Martha is washing all the dishes and refilling the mashed potatoes, and she's frazzled because she's working so hard, and she tells Christ, have Mary help me. Martha has the gift of service. This probably goes along with her personality. We see not only is there service to Christ, but there's also fellowship with Christ. Look at what he says about Lazarus. But Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. This is another way that we show our devotion and affection to Christ, not just acts of service, cleaning the bathrooms at the church, cutting the grass at the church. Those are all good and necessary things. So if you're inclined to do that, let me incline you further. It's good to serve as a Martha in that way. But it's also good just to spend time with Christ, to commune with Him. You know, when we have people over to our house, when you have people over to your house, you, you get all the food on the table, and you eat the food and, and drink the drinks, but the real point of that is just to spend time together, isn't it? It's just to talk and converse and debate things or perhaps discuss things. You gather around the table to spend time. That's what Lazarus is doing. That's what John is doing in pointing this out to us, that Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. John goes on, though, to talk about the final uh, expression of devotion and friendship to Christ, and that's in the person of Mary. Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. If Martha is the sister who's full of gifts of service, Lazarus is the brother who's just spending time and talking with Christ, Mary is the sister who's filled with deep affection for Christ. 
Mary, as we saw earlier in chapter 11, is the passionate sister. She's the one that when her brother is dead and Christ comes, she goes to Christ and uh, lets her anger out at him a little bit. But it's an honest, passionate anger. It's not a disrespectful or un, uh, uh, impious anger. She's just a passionate personality. And now here in this scene, when Christ is there sitting, her heart is welled up with affection for Christ, and she has to find some way to express herself to Christ, and so she devotes herself to Christ. Notice that she uses an expensive oil of spikenard. This uh, substance was used in the ancient world for either perfuming, it probably had also medicinal purposes. At any rate, it's extremely costly. This was a very expensive thing that Mary did. She not only gives away this expensive gift. uh, Oh, the, the other thing about this oil of spikenard I forgot to mention. It would be contained in a box or perhaps a flask. In Mark's gospel, it's called a flask. And these bottles that contained this material were, uh, they weren't Ziploc bags. They weren't reclosable. Once you cracked the neck of these things, it was open and you had to use all of it. There was no going back on stuff like this. So she cracks this thing open, pours it all at his feet. She also wipes her feet, uh, his feet with her hair. I want you to see in Mary this devotion that she gives herself to Christ. Very expensive, uses her own hair to wipe his feet. These three siblings then represent for us different ways that we devote ourselves to Christ and show our affection to him, either through acts of service or through spending time in communion with him, conversing with him through the word and prayer, or showing through acts of devotion our commitment to him. Now, these three siblings could represent the three faculties of the soul, the mind, the will, and the affections. Lazarus conversing with Christ would represent the mind. Mary serving would represent the will. And I'm sorry, Martha serving. Mary devoting herself in this passionate way would represent the affections. Now, I'm glossing the text a little bit to to highlight something. I don't think John means that, but I think it's a helpful metaphor for how we express ourselves. Some of you are going to be more like Martha. You're a go-getter. You like to get things done. You have a great capacity for getting things done. And you show your devotion to Christ by getting stuff done. That's a great gift. Others of you are going to be more like Lazarus more conversational, more contemplative, more interested in ideas and talking about things. Others of you are going to be more like Mary, passionate, full of of deep, sincere emotion, wanting simply to express it in some appropriate way. All of those ways of expressing devotion to Christ are legitimate. Notice he receives all three of them. He doesn't have a word of rebuke for anybody. He just receives all of this love and devotion from all three of them. What we all have to be careful of, though, is that you don't become a one-trick Christian. You all need to be engaged in acts of service, even though that may not be how you're inclined. We all need to be engaged in times of communion with Christ, even though that may not be your inclination. And there does need to be 
a certain level of affection for Christ that is expressed outwardly, even though you may not be inclined that way. So consider your life. Consider your devotion to Christ. Which one of these are you? If your inclination is towards acts of service, you may want to slow down a little bit. Spend a little more time reading the Bible. Spend a little bit more time in prayer and meditation. If your inclination is towards Bible reading and studying theology, maybe put the book down. Go find out if somebody in the church needs help with something. Maybe your inclination is towards a passionate expression of your devotions. Perhaps when you go into the prayer closet, it is five words of prayer and 50 drops of tears. Perhaps that's the way your piety expresses itself. You might want to gain a little control over that and read some more scripture. Devote yourself in these ways. So we have to be careful that we don't become one-trick Christians. We also have to be careful that we don't judge other Christians that Christ does not judge. You see, some of you may be gifted with service and may be tempted the way Martha was tempted. Mary's not doing what I'm doing. Jesus, make her do what I'm doing. And Christ says, no, no, no. She's chosen the better part. It's not going to be taken away from her. You see, we have to be careful that we don't judge one another because they don't fit the devotion that we like to express. To use use an analogy from a book that's probably not very valuable, but you all will get it. We don't all have the same devotion language. We don't all have the same love language towards Christ. We need to cultivate all of these different expressions, but we should not expect our brothers and sisters to devote to Christ the same way that we do. Because you see, ultimately, the reason Mary, Martha, and Lazarus are doing these things is because they love Christ. They love Christ above anything else. They want to show their affection to Christ in these ways. This is what the friends of Christ do. They don't seek glory. They don't seek wealth. They don't seek prestige. They seek Christ because they love him. This now is why Mary anoints Jesus in this manner. Now, you may be aware that Christ is already the Christ. Christ is already the anointed one. That's what the word Christ means. He is the anointed one. But you see, the anointing that he's received is the anointing from the Father. The Father has anointed Christ with the Holy Spirit beyond measure. Now, this devotion that his people show to him is their anointing of him prompted by the Holy Spirit. I want you to think about it this way. In our relationship to God, the Father sends us the Lord Jesus Christ as the anointed one. The Lord Jesus Christ then sends the Holy Spirit to convert us and produce affection for Christ. And then that same Holy Spirit directs those affections and that lowercase a anointing back to Christ. You see, Christ is the centerpiece of everything that we do as Christians. The Father anoints Christ in His uh, grace and glory. We anoint Christ in our thankfulness and devotion. So there's a double anointing upon the Lord Jesus Christ from the Father and from His people. 
Well, these are the friends of Christ, and this is how they show their devotion. But we also have the enemies of Christ. And the enemies of Christ show themselves by their love for something else. Now, here comes on the scene Judas Iscariot. Notice the final thing John says in verse 3. The house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. Let me just make one application and encourage you as we transition into this next section. As you devote your entire life to Christ, your entire life will be like a burnt offering to the Lord. You know what the burnt offering was in the Old Testament? Paul refers to it in Ephesians chapter 5. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1, Paul says, Be imitators of God as dear children. Walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. That phrase, sweet-smelling aroma, comes from the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, it's always applied to the burnt offering. The burnt offering symbolizes complete devotion to God. And that complete devotion rises into God's nostrils like a sweet-smelling aroma. Christ ultimately is the one who makes us fit to offer these sacrifices. But as you offer these sacrifices, just as Mary devotes herself to Christ, the entire room is filled with a sweet-smelling aroma. As you order your life in devotion to Christ, the effect will dissipate everywhere you go. The sweet-smelling aroma will fill whatever space you occupy. It will fill your family. It will fill your office. It will fill your church. It will fill your prayer closet. It begins to dissipate just like gases fill up the volume of the space that they are in. They naturally expand. Likewise, also, this aroma naturally expands. There's great encouragement here for us. In some ways... You can be a witness for Christ simply by being devoted to Christ and allowing that influence to show itself wherever you go. You don't always have to be haranguing people to repent and believe. You do always have to be uh, devoting yourself to the Lord Jesus in whatever you do. And the Lord will dispel that wherever you go. This then makes the wickedness of Christ's enemies all the more wicked. Verse 4, one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Notice first off the hypocrisy of, I should say, the impiety of Judas. This fragrant aroma is filling the room. There's a pleasant meal going on. Martha's diligently serving. Jesus, Lazarus, and the other disciples are conversing at the table. Mary comes unannounced, anoints the Lord's feet, wipes it with her hair. The room is filled with this aroma. And the only thing Judas can think to do is criticize her. Why this waste? What are you doing? This is a waste of money and a waste of time. What's the matter with you? You see, the impiety of Judas, the only thing he can think to do is to criticize the sincere and affectionate devotion of Mary. 
This is a warning to us. This is often one of the first signs that your heart is not right to the Lord. If you see a brother and sister devoting themselves to the Lord, perhaps you're, you're engaged in some activity and you know there's a brother there, and let's say that brother just spontaneously says, hey, we should pray about this before we go any further. How does your heart respond to that? This is a waste of time. We've got to get this done. Why are we doing this right now? We're about to fix the truck, or we're about to go to the store, or we're about to go on the road trip. How does your heart respond to acts of devotion in other brothers and sisters? That may be a sign that you're not loving Christ the way you ought to. That was a sign that Judas did not love Christ. Not only is Judas impious, he's also a hypocrite. Look at what John says. This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box, and he used to take what was put in it. Not only is Judas impious, but but deep down, he loves money more than Christ. His affections are set upon the money that he would steal out of the common purse that they had. And so John exposes his hypocrisy and says, Judas doesn't care about the poor. He cares about the money. Paul warns us in one of the pastoral letters that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. He doesn't say money is the root of all kinds of evil, but the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Judas is an example of this. And Judas exemplifies for us the danger that the love of money can capture us with. Money is a very interesting thing, isn't it? It, It's at one and the same time something we probably despise having to work for the money. But on the other hand, it's something that we enjoy having more of. And and the, the interesting thing about money is the more that you have, the more secure you think you are. Isn't that interesting? The people who have the most money in the world at one level think, because I have all this money, I am safe. This often motivates a lot of people to work as hard as they do and to make the sacrifices that they make to acquire and pile up more and more stacks of money thinking that money will be their savior. But Christ warned us, didn't he? You cannot have two masters. You cannot serve God and money. The reality is, it doesn't matter how much money you have, it doesn't matter how poor you are, if you are in Christ, you are as secure as Croesus, the richest king of Greece. It doesn't matter if you have to scrape for every meal. God in his providence will secure you and protect you more than all the insurance policies and all the annuities and all the 401ks that you can stack up. You are just as secure with money as you are without money. But Judas is a lover of money, and he's willing to sacrifice to get this money. Notice also, not only is Judas impious, not only is he a hypocrite, but he's incredibly petty, isn't he? Isn't it funny just how petty Judas is being right now? Mary is giving this profound act of devotion. In another another gospel, the gospel of Mark, 
Jesus will say that, let her alone, what she has done will be remembered wherever this gospel is preached. She will be remembered as the one that loved Jesus because of what she's done right here. And Judas is so petty, he can't stand this fragrance filling the room. Brothers and sisters, we need to be careful, one, that we're not impious, two, that we're not hypocritical, but three, also that we are not petty. This becomes especially true in how we relate to covenant children. You see, covenant children, one of the beautiful things about it is when, uh, in many cases, when the Spirit's at work in a covenant child's heart, they will give very sincere acts of devotion that are very unsophisticated acts of devotion. And if we begin to nitpick and become petty with them, we can quench the burning flax. We can snuff out the candle that the Lord may be lighting and encouraging. So as you interact with covenant children, even if they're not your own covenant children, don't be petty, but encourage what is sincere, and your heart will be encouraged as well. Well, Judas shows himself to be an enemy of Christ because he loves money more than Christ, and then Christ rebukes him and says, let her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial. For the poor you have not with you all, uh, for the poor you have with you always, but me you do not have always. Christ rebukes uh, uh, Judas, and he does it by just simply telling him, leave this woman alone. The poor that you claim to care for, you can always care for them. They're not going anywhere. But me, I am going to go somewhere. You're not always going to be able to show your devotion to me. There is a limited time to devote yourself to Christ. Notice also, Christ says this was kept for the day of his burial. Now, there probably is a question here. This is six days before the Passover. Christ has not been crucified. Probably what he's expressing when he says day of my burial is the approaching day of my burial. Mary has kept this to show her devotion to me at the time when I'm about to be buried. And so she pours this out in anticipation of the death of Christ. There's one other important thing to notice here. Turn with me back to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14 records the same episode. Mark chapter 14 records this episode, beginning in verse 3. Now, there's some differences in the narration, um, but it is the same episode. We can tell by the language that's used. Beginning in verse 3, the gospel writer says, Being in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at the table, a woman came having an alabaster flask of costly oil of spikenard. Then she broke the flask and poured it on his head. But there were some who were indignant among themselves and said, Why was this fragrant oil wasted? For it might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they criticized her sharply. And then Jesus says, Let her alone. Why do you trouble her? She's done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always, and whenever you wish, you may do them good. But she, but me, you do not have always. Now skip down to verse 10. 
Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray him to them. What I simply want to point out to you in conclusion about this doctrine of devotion to Christ or enmity to Christ, and and leaving us with the question, what do we love the most? Do we love Christ the most, or do we love something else the most? Even in this house, is Christ the object of your affections, or is money the object of your affections? Perhaps in our generation, money is not the great idol of our day, but self is the great idol of our day. And the question is, at this time, whom do you love? If you do not love Christ above all else, you need to take heed and be warned because you do not have Christ with you always. After Christ rebukes Judas, Mark doesn't record it as Judas, but John does record it. It's directly to Judas. After Christ rebukes Judas, Judas's heart is hardened. And then he goes to betray him. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus at this dinner want to show their devotion to Christ and prepare him for burial because they love him. Judas, because of his hatred for Christ, he loves something else more than Christ, is rebuked by Christ and is now ready to betray Christ to death. It's very interesting in God's providence how he has orchestrated the cross. You see, the cross was part of God's providential plan from the beginning. And in this episode, a fellowship meal in a house with a small family, in this very mundane and prosaic episode, the fate of eternity is being determined. A lady washes Christ's feet with oil of spikenard. One man says we should have given that to the poor. That now determines his eternal destiny. He is going to become the betrayer because of what he said at this dinner. How often do we say things that we would take back if we knew where they led? Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day that Christ offers you back into his fellowship. Today is the day you can redevote yourself to Christ because Christ does not want sacrifices and burnt offerings. Christ wants a broken and a contrite heart. And all those who come to him he receives as his friends. Amen. And amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for his friendship toward us in the cross and in the pouring out of the Spirit. We pray you would help us to devote ourselves more fully to Christ, that we would love nothing else except him. And we pray that you would accept our humble offerings, an act of service, time spent in your word. a a passionate expression of our devotion to you. Whatever we are able to offer, we pray that you would accept it. Because as you have graced us with salvation, we would grace you with our thanksgiving. We pray also, O Lord, that you would expose your enemies. And that if it would be your good pleasure, you would give your enemies repentance to the acknowledgement of the truth, that they may be saved and that they may escape the snare of the devil. We pray all of this for Jesus' sake. Amen.